while um, you're waiting maybe for one or two more to, to come, uh, has everyone got one of these sheets? It should say the rules of affinity simplified. So put your hand up if you haven't got one of these. Joyce, I don't think you've got one. So there's two there. Ken, if you can pass those back. Thank you. All right, everyone good? All right, I've got two more, so that's good. Now that, that sheet is, uh, I know it looks a little complicated, but it's not, okay? Don't fear, because all it is doing is demonstrating the principle that I was trying to show last week. Remember one of the things that we did was to, to try to categorize uh, statements or propositions that people make uh, whether they be Orthodox Christians or whether they are members of a cult, for example, or maybe they're just an atheist misquoting scripture, Bertrand Russell style, um, we can take what they say and we can match it up with the verses that they are using to prove their proposition. And remember, what I said last week was that for the vast majority of fundamental doctrines. Now, by fundamental doctrines, I mean those doctrines that you have to believe if you're an Orthodox Christian. You have to believe in justification by grace through faith and not any works. No merit. You have no merit before God. Don't try to impress God. He's not impressed. Will not be impressed tomorrow. Will not be impressed at the end of your life. You must trust the merits of Jesus Christ who died in your place. That's a love gift for you because you can't do it. And neither can I. So, uh, everybody has to believe in justification by grace through faith. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 speak about that very thing, Galatians three and, uh, 2 and 3, also speak about justification by faith and through God's grace. Uh, grace being, the old definition works, unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of God. That's what we need, and without it, we're lost. Uh, we all have to believe in the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, we use the word persons, but one essence. So it's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It would be a contradiction if we said three persons and one person, but we're not saying that. We're saying three persons, one essence. Now, you're one person and one essence. Now, you might actually call yourself two essences if we... Uh, we uh, talk about body and soul, but that would be in a different way. You're really one person and one essence. You're, you're a human being. But the God is not like that, and it shouldn't surprise you that God is not like you. It shouldn't surprise you that God is both one and many. It shouldn't surprise you that God is both plurality and uh, singularity. 
that he brings those two things together in himself. But this isn't a course on the doctrine of God, so we'll move on. You have to believe in the doctrine of creation. We'll look a little bit at that today. Uh, you have to believe in the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have to believe also that uh, Jesus is coming back again. If you can pass that back to David, John, you've got long arms. Oh, he's got one there. Okay. Now, all of those doctrines and more, they are all confirmed by direct statements of Scripture. You don't have to go, you know, flipping through the Bible, trying to find uh, typological connections <laughs> or, you know, connections where, where you're really just kind of squeezing and forcing and shoehorning a verse to make it say something that it needs to say in order for you to tick it off and say, yeah, I'm orthodox. The Bible does it for you. The Bible says uh, what it means as far as the major doctrines of the Christian faith are concerned. And that is a very, actually, very important in, insight. I can call my own insight insight. <laughs> um, now, other doctrines, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity, and I gave you another doctrine here, inerrancy. These are important Christian doctrines, but you cannot go to a direct statement of scripture and find all scripture is inerrant. You can find all scripture is God-breathed and from that you imply that it's inerrant. Do you see? Because God can't lie. Uh, God cannot uh, say something that's not true. And since all scripture is God's word, then all scripture is true and therefore must be inerrant. That doesn't mean that all the things that are in the Bible are, uh, are inerrant sayings. Why is that? You've got to think. Inference. Not just inferences. It just doesn't it record lies? It does, doesn't it? Genesis 3. Satan tells a lie, doesn't he? Okay. okay. So, but it records the lie. It tells the truth about the lie. Do you see? So it's inerrant in the things that it affirms, not that uh, it doesn't also uh, report errors that people make, like David and Moses and, well, everybody, actually, apart from Jesus. <laughs> um, now, all of the fundamental doctrines, as we saw last week, are either category one, the direct statement, or a very strong inference, category two. And then you have those category three statements. Flip over. I'm sorry about this. It's, this is completely Paul Annabry doing it the wrong way. I thought I got it right and, well, I didn't. Yeah, well, it's supposed to do it itself. But, you know, but obviously I misunderstood. <laughs> so, a category three is an inference to the best explanation. And I said in science, if it's proper science, you use this, uh, this idea, okay? An inference to the best explanation. You collect data and you make inferences and observations and theorems based on the data that you have. You collect more data that will either overthrow what you've brought up 
or it will confirm it. If it confirms it in every case, then you have a law of science, okay? Uh, but an inference to the best explanation is a category three. That's where you get bits and pieces of information, no direct statement saying, for example, that the rapture is pre-tribulational. Um, or another one would be that you have to have a multi, uh, 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 a multi-elder church and all of the elders are the same. Okay? Despite what people think, you cannot go to a text of scripture that teaches that. Okay, you have to make inferences to that. You make an inference built on the best argument that you can, one way or another. You say, what's your position on that? My position on that is uh, uh, Andrew Fuller's position on that, which is some people are going to disagree with you. So just live with it and do what you think is right. Uh, the most important qualification for an elder is what? They're a man of God. They're a man of God. So, uh, that's a C3. Now, all of your doctrines, anything that you affirm as a Christian, ought to be C1, C2, or C3. But there are other categories, C4s and C5s. These are based on very weak inferences, or an inference even based on another inference. And those kinds of things, really, you shouldn't, you shouldn't rely on those doctrines. But because they are inferences that we come to with our clever minds, with our logic, we say, oh, this means this, and therefore this must mean this, do you see? Um, we place a lot of value on them because we place a lot of value on our thinking. Let me illustrate this for you. All right, so let's say that we have a doctrine. Let's say, uh, I don't know. The deity of Christ, okay? So here's our doctrine. Um, what we should do is that we should go to texts of scripture, passages. We'll call them T, T1, T2, T3. These are all texts of scripture, okay? And you might have John 1, you might have First uh, Timothy 3.16, you might have John 20.28. 20, these direct statements of scripture, okay? And what you're doing is that you're going to these passages and you're going from the, the Bible up to your proposition. We'll call the proposition P. Only because I don't want to write proposition, okay? I don't want to confuse you. It's because I'm lazy. So, proposition, okay? Statement, in other words. I believe this. And you say, I believe this, and someone says, well, why do you believe that? And then you say, because this is what the Bible says. That's all that's going on here. But you can see the movement. The movement is from text to uh, statement of faith, yes? Now, your next one, so your next doctrine, which might be, I don't know, the resurrection, maybe the humanity of Christ, okay? So here's uh, doctrine one, and here's doctrine two. These are just examples. So the humanity of Christ. Okay, what should you do? What should your procedure be? 
Yeah, of course. It should be that you're looking around, you're fishing around for texts which are direct statements which tell you about the humanity of Christ. He was born of a virgin, um, but he was a man. Behold the man, Pilate said. Yes? Um, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, Paul says. Okay? So he's a man. So again, what you do is that you move from the Bible up until you uh, have your statement of faith. Yes, is that straightforward? I'm not being confusing? Really? All right. Okay, good. All right, now let me picture this uh, again. Where's my board rubber? Do I have one? All right, I have my hand. So... It's on the where? Oh, there it is. Okay, thank you. Okay. So, <clears throat> the movement that we saw was a movement from text up to proposition. It was a movement that was this way. And then what we should be doing for doctrine, of course, doctrine one, but doctrine two, whatever that doctrine is, creation, providence, any doctrine that you might want to name, is that we need to be doing the same thing. Do you see? We need to be going this way all the time, from the text of Scripture <clears throat> up until our formulation of doctrine. And then what we want to do is that we want to link at this level the doctrines, okay? Um, and it's only at this level that we make our inferences. This is our raw data. This is the platform or the foundation upon which we claim these propositions to be true. And, but what we do is that we want to link one doctrine to, a, to another doctrine. Uh, Christ rose physically from the dead. Uh, we shall rise, Paul says. We have the Holy Spirit within us, Romans 8, and therefore we shall rise too. Paul links them in Romans 6 and Romans 8. He says that because Christ has been raised, we've been raised. So we have these two statements of doctrine, and what we can do is that we can make inferences when we join the two things together. Okay? We will be like him for we will see him like he is, First John 3. Well, how was he? He didn't stagger you know, into the upper room after he was crucified and bang on the door and say, guys, let me in, I'm dying out here. He, he, the door was locked and he just appeared and he appeared gloriously and he appeared um, as the... Uh, immaculate Christ, yes? Didn't show his glory, but he was completely whole. And um, that's what our bodies will be like too. A heavenly, uh, celestial, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, body. So we can link these two things together and we can form our theology, our doctrine, the things that we say we believe, this way. Alright? But that's not what 
a lot of people do. What a lot of people do is this. So, we start off well. Doctrine of creation, say. So, we say the doctrine of creation, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. And we're going this way. And then what people do is that they say, ah, that means, or must mean this. And then they'll start to do this at this level. And then they'll go fishing for a text. Once they've come to a conclusion here, they'll go fishing for a text down here. Do you see? Do you see the movement? And this is what you find with a lot of people and a lot of theology. You find that uh, they will say, let's, uh, let's think of... Um, I put the covenant of grace there, the covenant of grace which is believed by covenant theologians. The covenant of grace is the belief that uh, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 uh, that they would be included in the household of God. Okay? That covenant was of grace because they had already disobeyed another covenant, a so-called covenant of works in Genesis 2. Um, or they were given one in Genesis 2, they broke it in Genesis 3. So, that being the case, what people say is that, okay, that covenant, we infer it, even though it doesn't say there was a covenant, we infer that covenant... And because it's a covenant of grace with all of the elect, that means all of the people who are ever going to be saved are going to be within that covenant of grace. That must mean that all of the people who are ever going to be saved are going to be included in the one people of God. Do you see how the logic goes? But did I go to any text to put this stuff together? No, I didn't. See, I did this. I started off, okay, with a text, but then I started inferring things. Okay? And what I have to do is that I have to keep trying to go down here for proof text. And my proof text, because I didn't start this way, my proof texts are going to be misses as far as um, direct statements or clear statements are concerned. They're going to be uh, statements that actually don't really say what I want them to say. Um, so all of the proof texts for the covenant of grace, for example, don't say anything about a covenant of grace. Guess where they go? Well, they go to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. But that's the Abrahamic covenant. That's not the covenant of grace. So why would you go to the Abrahamic covenant to prove a covenant that you said was made in Genesis 3. Do you see? And that's, that's what happens. Uh, you, you have a very weak inference, but you have come to that, uh, that doctrine not on the basis of direct statements, C1s or C2s, but you have, you have left behind di the direct statements of Scripture and you've just inferred stuff and now you're scouting around the Bible for proof texts. That's what cults do for their doctrines and that's what some Christians do too for their doctrines. 
And it, it takes a bit to, to, to kind of memorize this stuff. But if you do memorize it, it really helps you. Because you, have you ever talked to a Christian, you know, a brother or sister, and you say, where does that come from? Where did you get that from? And they've gone, for example, somewhere in the Old Testament uh, for a proof text for something they're supposed to be doing as a Christian. And you might uh, point out, well, hold on a minute, that says, that's to Israel, and that's under the law. And Paul says, we're not under the law. Do you see? So, surely we need a text that says that we are to continue to do this, and they can't find a text, but they're okay with that because they've already inferred that that text is actually for a Christian, not based on what the Bible's saying, but just based on their own logic. So you're fighting not with the text of Scripture, you're fighting with their logic. Clear as mud? We'll come back to this, but this is what this is about. What I want you to do is I want you to, uh, to look at the references that I've given to you and kind of track them down and, and see how this works out. I think you'll get a better idea of what I'm talking about. All right. We also spoke about covenants and the kind of uh, communication that God is involved in. The communication is described like this. God's um, words correspond with God's actions. That's really simple. That's going to save you many headaches in interpreting the Bible. God's words correspond with his actions. Uh, God is not going to say something, one thing and do something different. He's not going to catch you out. He's not going to mislead you. He might say something in figurative language, and so you may have a bit of study to do. You'll certainly have to look at the context to see if he's talking to you or not, to see if it's a universal truth or it's a, a truth for that time, for that person or whatever. He, he uh, told Abraham to sacrifice his son. You better not take that and apply it to yourself. Okay? <laughs> Because there's no guarantee that when you get to Mount Moriah, there's going to be a, a goat caught in a thicket for you. Okay? Uh, but nevertheless, God's words do correspond to his actions. Okay? This is a very important principle. It is, again, I have to say, it's ignored by many Bible interpreters. Uh, what they will do is that they will say that God's words in the Old Testament, have to be uh, morphed and transformed by the New Testament. Do you see? That, does dis- that disrupts this completely. Uh, it doesn't just disrupt it at, at the level of Old Testament, New Testament. It disrupts it, as we said last week, at the level of the character of God and therefore the trustworthiness of God. So when you're saying that about 
God's communication, you're saying that about God's person. Um, <clears throat> oh, we said something about covenants and we're going to do more about this, but just to remind you, covenants are actually um, amplifications of divine speech if they are God's covenants about something sorry about my writing it's getting worse as I go down (laughs) important just take a note of that alright any questions about that Yes. Any questions about any of this? Can you read what you just wrote? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Can't read <Please>. my writing. <laughs> Amplifications of divine speech about something important. Okay. Can you see that, David? All right, I'll try to write up here. No, that's fine. I got, right. I got it. Okay. You said it enough times now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Any questions about this? Because we're not going to come back to the covenant stuff for a little bit. I will keep reiterating uh, the material about God's words and God's actions. That's a really important thing and uh, it's fundamental to the rest of your understanding of the Bible. I do have a question. Yes. You, you said about how you can take something from the Old Testament <coughs> and morph it to confirm to conform to something a belief in the New Testament. I'm saying or you shouldn't do that. Do yes. That. Could you give me an example of oh, yeah, how yeah. that's being done? Uh, sure. Um, let's see. Go to, um, let's see. Yeah, go to Ezekiel. Chapter 40. Yeah. Everyone there? All right. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, on the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. Uh, Ezekiel is by the river Chebar, so he's in in, uh, Babylon and he's being taken back to Jerusalem. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it, toward the south, was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. 
in the man's hand was a measuring rod and so on and so forth. And so he goes on and he measures the threshold and he measures the gate and he measures the gate chamber and you've, have you all read this? It's not one of the most, you know, stunningly exciting passages of scripture. But it's important because it's telling you about a temple. And it's telling you about a temple in the future. How do we know that it's in the future? Because of the context of Ezekiel uh, 34 through to the end, 48. And because there are elements in Ezekiel that bespeak of that. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11, we find that the glory of God leaves the temple through the east gate, hovers around for a while and then disappears. Okay. In chapter 43 of Ezekiel, the glory of God comes back through the east gate of this temple and comes back into the Holy of Holies and resides there. God is in the temple, but he's only allowed to be ministered to by the Zadokites. He's not allowed to be ministered to by all of the Levites. And that's because of the Levites' defection at the time of um, uh, Absalom. No, not Absalom, Adonijah. And um, because of that, the line of Zadok got the, uh, the exclusive rights to the high priesthood and also the, the ministering coming close to God. So you see a division in the priesthood. Well, you don't see that in the Old Testament law. You don't see that in the ministrations of Solomon's temple or of Zerubbabel's temple, but you do in this one. In this, the high priest? Sorry? Is that just the high priest can be Zedekite? No, no, no. It's uh, those that can approach to God in their service. The only ones who can approach to God are Zadokites. Uh, that's in chapter 43 and 44 of, of uh, this. They also are separated because they're given land in chapter 47 that the other Levites are given uh, a different bunch of land um, around the temple. That's very different than Solomon's temple. There's also no high priest. There's no Yom Kippur that's celebrated here in Ez- at Ezekiel's temple. It's future. This is not a um, an Old Testament temple. And at chapter 48, the, uh, the glory of that kingdom is spelled out. It's also massive. This, this thing is miles long. It's about 25 miles square, something like that. It's huge. Uh, what am I saying here? Well, we either believe what it says or what we do is we go into the New Testament. We go to John chapter, was it 2? Where Jesus says that, um, you know, just destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Raise it up. And in the commentary is that he spoke about his body. And so they say, ah, you see, Jesus' body, Jesus is the temple and he's replaced the temple of the Jews. Then I'll also go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and, uh, where it says, and in other places, where it says that we're, the church is the temple and we're the temple in Christ. All right? So we're now the new temple. 
So with that New Testament knowledge, we can go back into the Old Testament, this, this troublesome passage, and we can say, well, actually, this is just a symbol. This is just a shadow. Ezekiel is prophesying about Christ and the church. This is not a literal temple. Do you see what's happened? Ezekiel seems to be boringly telling us about a temple. But all we need to do is is, uh, ignore the last nine chapters of Ezekiel and skip over to the New Testament. Just a couple of verses will clear the whole thing up for us. It's actually talking about Christ and the church. That's morphing or changing the Old Testament with our understanding of the New. Does that give you an idea of what we're talking about? Right. Question. Mm-hmm. So, I, a lot of people will take promises that God made to Israel yes. in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and will hold on to them as their own personal Yes, yes. Of which I will also do. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Jeremiah 29, when they're sent into exile, this is like the, the poster child verse that, you know, all these college students get them on journals mm-hmm. and stuff at graduation. <clears throat> they leave out verses 1 through 10, but then they hold on to 11 about, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and mm-hmm. all of that. So when, when you make this connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you had said earlier to look at God's promises we also need to look at what was the context did he make it to a nation mm-hmm. or is it a promise for all mm-hmm. so I guess when I look at that promise I don't necessarily think that God was making that promise with Tiffany Edwards in mind mm-hmm. he made it to the nation of Israel Yes. but my belief is that God's character and God's heart towards right. the nation of Israel also reflects his heart towards me okay which gives me a premise to hold on to <clears throat> some of those Old Testament promises that he made towards Israel. Okay. Am I off base in thinking that? No, we're going to do some of that actually tonight. Okay. We're going to go to Zephaniah. Okay. But, um, but what you're doing, is, you see, is that you're going to um, a text in Jeremiah and you are correctly identifying what's going on there with the context, okay? So because you've done that, you are, are getting a, a right interpretation, a right picture of what God is saying and who is saying it to. But then what you're doing is that you've, you're extracting out of it an application. Okay? Because there's a principle or a truth about God that is involved here. And so, you, you're, not, you're not robbing the text of its context or of the people that it's speaking to or what it's talking about. But you are seeing within it, correctly, a principle about God that you can apply to yourself because God does not change. And maybe, in the context, the good that he has in mind might be a kingdom, a literal kingdom, good, which you're not expecting as far as the good that you're envisaging. Um, you want something that's a little bit less far off and something that's going to help you right now. And you can do that because you can take a text like that which speaks about the goodness of God and you can uh, put it together with uh, you know, Ephesians 2 
uh, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, that speak about uh, God's goodness to you, that he will uh, answer you above and beyond that which you ask or think, for example, that God's love towards you is, uh, is so great that he sent his son for you. You see, and, and you can bring all of those texts together and because you know those texts are true about your Heavenly Father, you can fit this one in too without bending it so that it's not about Tiffany Edwards. But then it can be applied to Tiffany Edwards. Now, it's not an inference because <clears throat> we're not getting doctrines from it. Okay? All we're doing is that we're getting an application of a general truth to, to use for ourselves. But we will get back to that. I'm going to illustrate that more, hopefully with the Zephaniah passage tonight. Um, let's keep that up there. <clears throat> All right, well, in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible opens up with these famous words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some people take that to be a, uh, a general, like a, a headline for uh, what's coming up. So the, the whole of Genesis 1. I think it can be taken that way, that the rest of what Genesis chapter 1 is, is talking about is covered in verse 1. It can also just be a, a simple statement of God beginning his creation uh, in verse 1. It, scholars go backwards and forwards about it. It really doesn't matter a great deal. Uh, so I just believe both of them, quite honestly. Um, my preference is that it's a coverall statement for the whole of the chapter. Um, what it's saying is actually quite revelation, uh, revolutionary and revelational too. It's saying something that no other ancient text says. All of the other ancient texts, uh, there are several uh, ancient texts. Uh, I'll just write some of them down for you. So... Um, Gilgamesh you've probably heard of and others um, these ancient uh, texts which include uh, creation stories uh, they have a very different beginning for example in uh, uh, I think it's the uh, Atrahasis uh, epic you have uh, the god, I think it's Marduk, who is in a fight with Tiamat, the serpent god. Usually there's water involved. And this water goddess is killed by Marduk and then Marduk chops her up in good ancient pagan fashion. And then from her body he makes the world. He makes human beings, he makes the world, he makes uh, the heavens and so on. But I hope you can see that there is pre-existing matter which he uses, the body of time out. Do you see? Um, here, there's no pre-existing matter. It's in the beginning, God created. And the word that's, cr that's used there is the word bara. 
B-A-R-A in our uh, language. And this is only used of God in the Bible. Uh, this has to do with, with actual creation. And our idea is that God has created from nothing that's pre-existing. That's what we call creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. That is a specifically Christian or Judeo-Christian doctrine. And you don't find it elsewhere in the ancient world. Every other doctrine of creation in the ancient world has the eternity of matter, or at least implied in it, in the myth. So that's really quite something. God here, you see, stands over and above and apart from what he makes. This is very important because the God of Scripture is not a God who relies on anything else. He is the source of everything that is. Now, if there was God, but there was also eternal matter, I hope you can see that there would be a rival to God because the uh, eternal matter would deserve a little bit of veneration, wouldn't it? And got it in the ancient world. But not here in this story. Matter is, is a created thing from God. Of course, we know from the second law of thermodynamics and so on that uh, matter is not eternal. It can't be eternal. It would have all run down by now. If it started in eternity, we wouldn't actually be here because there wouldn't be any matter to make us uh, out of. So, uh, matter is not eternal. Only God is eternal. And this is a statement also about the eternality and lordship of the biblical God. Please don't think, therefore, that the God of the Bible is just like any other God. And don't allow your unbelieving friends to equate him with another God, you know, a false God like Thor. God doesn't need a horned helmet and a stupid get-up and a big hammer to make him impressive, okay? And Thor gets beaten up anyway about every other fight that he's in. So he's not much of a god. He's a pretty good human, but he's not much of a god. The god of the Bible is not like that at all. He is the Lord of all things. And it continues here that the earth was without form. And this is not a, a textual commentary on Genesis, so we're not going to go too much into all of this. But it was, all, it was without form. It was amorphous, like a big blob. And it was void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. What is the deep? I uh, don't really know. The stuff around the blob, I guess. <laughs> and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the idea of the Spirit of God here is not... Uh, like a, a ghostly wraith uh, that is just passing over the earth. This has to do with uh, um, a, a meditation uh, or a, uh, an anticipatory hovering over this, uh, this matter that has just been created. It's used in the book of Deuteronomy uh, for a, a bird that hovers over its, its uh, nest. 
So it's not like a bird flying over a nest, it's a bird flying around a nest, keeping an eye on it. Do you see? So that's why some people like to translate this word brooded. Do you see? Brood, the Spirit of God brooded um, over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was, surprise, surprise, what? Light. I've already told you why. Because God's speech and God's actions go together. Do you see? Now, again, you think this is uh, really primary stuff, but it's amazing how many Christians miss it. Uh, by the end of Genesis chapter 1, you have a pretty good hermeneutic going on. In other words, you have a pretty good guidance of how to interpret the Bible. And guess what? You don't need thousand-page um, hermeneutics textbooks to tell you. <clears throat> hermeneutics is just the big fancy word for interpretation. So you can use this one if you like. I'll try and use this one, but I'll sometimes use that one, so that's why I'm writing it down, because I can't promise you that I won't use the $100 word. Uh, hermeneutics, this comes from Hermes. And Hermes, he, you know, he's the cool god with the, the helmet, with the wings on the helmet. I was, I thought he was pretty cool. And um, he's the messenger of the God. Now, gods. Now, if he's the messenger of the gods, particularly Zeus, then uh, Zeus tells him, go and tell Theseus or some other dude down there in the Greek, um, you know, wars. Go and tell him this. Go and tell Jason to build an ark or whatever. Um... And uh, that's what Hermes does. He doesn't go down and tell him to do something else. He tells him what Zeus told him to tell him. Yes? So, Hermes is the interpreter also of the gods. Do you see? So, that's where this big long word comes from. Uh, there's more to it, but that's in, enough. That's as much as you need to know. So when I use that term, it's got to do with uh, the interpretation of what God says, this, the true God, and uh, unless it's uh, very clear, uh, he means what he says. So he says, let there be light, and there was light, because there's always a correspondence between what God thinks and what he says and what he says and what he does. right there in the third verse of the Bible. God saw the light and it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. The darkness here is not bad. Just because the light's being divided from the darkness doesn't mean the darkness is evil. It just means the darkness is dark. And uh, that division, basic division is being done, you'll see, for a reason. You're going to see a logic uh, moving from uh, the division of light and darkness up until the creation of man 
and then a mandate given to man on the sixth day. God called the day, the light day, and the darkness he called night. So in this verse, day is daytime, and night is nighttime. So the evening and the morning were the first day. What's day there? Day there is an evening and a morning. In other words, it's a 24-hour day. That's how you're supposed to interpret it. Now, folks, whether you believe, and I'm not here to, to uh, argue with people about the age of the earth. Um, I'll do that another time. <laughs> but um, if, you, if you read the Hebrew scholars, even the liberal ones, they tell you, this is a 24-hour day. Um, they don't believe it's a 24-hour day. They believe it's a big myth, okay? But at least they say that's what the text says. Now, it's only evangelical scholars, believing scholars, that try to go to places like this and say it doesn't say or doesn't mean what it says. When it says day there, it doesn't mean 24 hours. It means maybe millions of years, years, or maybe it doesn't mean any kind of time period at all. It's just kind of a, a marker there for a theme that's being presented to us. Now, I believe uh, that uh, the earth is a young earth. So if that upsets some of you and some of you think I'm a troglodyte or whatever, then, you know, you can believe it. It's up to you. Um, I don't want to, I don't think that you're a heretic if you believe in an old earth. What I do believe is that you have problems with uh, one of the central doctrines of Scripture, which is that Scripture alone is sufficient. Okay? The sufficiency of Scripture means that, um, you, that you don't have to go out uh, from the Word of God to get new knowledge to reinterpret the Word of God. Do you see? The sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that the Bible is going to tell you how to fix a puncture on your car or, you know, how it's going to teach you how to build a wall or something like that. It does mean, though, that anything that the Bible does teach, it teaches And so, therefore, you don't need to go outside of the Bible to get information to throw light on the Bible because you can't understand what the Bible is saying. This is really quite clear. This is a 24-hour day, evening and morning. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Now, uh, this firmament, it, 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 uh, it means a kind of a flattened out space. Let it divide the waters from the waters. That's kind of a difficult verse. What's going on here? There's waters being divided from waters by a, by a space, some hard space. What we need, I think, is a bit more information, so let's read on. 
Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters that were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. Hold on a minute, hold on. So you're saying that there are waters above heaven and waters below heaven because the firmament is heaven. That's what it says. Now what's the heaven? Is it the, the sky? Is it the stratosphere? Is it space? Is it the dwelling place of God? There are different interpretations of that. But it do, whatever interpretation you choose you have to put the waters above them, at least half of them, okay? Because that's what the verse says. Um, getting a little bit speculative here, you don't have to, to join me on this, uh, but in the last book of the Bible, in uh, Revelation chapter 14, you see a sea of glass in heaven. Um, in Ezekiel chapter... 28, you see uh, these weird uh, cherubims, yes? We'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually. We'll see these weird cherubims and they have upon them a, a kind of a platform that they hold up and it's described as like the terrible crystal. It's like glass. And... Uh, Seas are made out of water. And there's a sea of glass in Revelation 14. It's possible, I just put it out there, it is possible that that is a reference to these waters that were above the heaven. Maybe not. But if it's not a reference to them, then I don't know what's happened to all these waters that were above the heaven. They've gone somewhere. Whatever happened, God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. I wish we had more information, but we don't, so I'm going to move on. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose fruit is in itself on the earth. And it was so. The pattern here is uh, unmistakable. God says and God does. And verse 12 just repeats this. The earth brought forth grass and herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind and God saw that it was good. What he's calling good is what he has said he wants to do and what he does. In other words, God wants something and he speaks something into existence. What he speaks into existence is what he says he wants And then he, because it it turns out the way he wants it to turn out, it's good. So it has an ethical dimension because it matches up to what God wants it to be 
It's not something different. Application. Um, we've mentioned Abraham. We'll mention, mention him again. So in Genesis 22, uh, God taps Abraham on the shoulder and tells him to go up Mount Moriah and take uh, Isaac, your only son, Isaac. He makes a, a big, um, big deal of that. Your only son. Take him up Mount Moriah and uh, sacrifice him. Paraphrase. And so Abraham stops and thinks about this. And he thinks, well, hold on a minute. It took me forever to get this son in the first place. And now he's here. God promised him to me. And he also promised that through Isaac, the descendants would come. In fact, he made a very particular point about that. So he can't mean that literally, can he? He can't mean that I've really got to take Isaac up and sacrifice him. That doesn't make any sense. So I've, I, he must mean it in a figurative sense. So maybe I should reinterpret what God says and take a figure of Isaac up Mount Moriah and sacrifice that and see if God's satisfied with that. But Abraham didn't think like that. Abraham must have been confused. Come on. I mean, he must have been confused. Kierkegaard wrote a whole book about this, uh, this trial of faith called Fear and Trembling um, about this very incident. Just imagine if, if it was your son. God's God, isn't he? He's the boss. He has, he's the only one who has the right to, to demand that. And yet he demands it and, and you don't question it. You don't think twice. You've got several days to think about this. On the way, you don't think you're thinking about what you have to do. When your son says, well, here's the wood, but where's the animal for the burnt offering? You don't think that you don't want to burst into tears? Of course you do. You don't think you question God a little bit? This seems really unreasonable, Lord. Of course, put yourself in a situation. But Abraham's faith saw through that, you see. This is, this is the thing. Abraham took God at his word and took his son up Mount Moriah. Turn to, Genesis, uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. Look what the writer of Hebrews says about this act. Hebrews 11:17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. You see, he's putting the onus here, isn't he? On, he's, he's telling us how difficult this, this was, how contrary to logic this seemed. But look at verse 19. 
concluding that God was able to raise him up. How did his faith work? His faith worked by saying, all right, God wants me to take Isaac. In fact, he's made it very clear that it's that Isaac that he means, not another Isaac. Not a sheep that I name Isaac and then take up Mount Moriah. This, your only son, the son of promise. That's the one. All right, well, he wants me to take him up and offer him as a sacrifice. God means what he says. All right, so I need to remember to wipe off what I've written. So God says something and my faith kicks in and I take him up Mount Moriah. There's Mount Moriah. It's very steep. And um, this passage tells us that he reasoned in a certain way. But he reasoned by faith. His faith guided his reason. He reasoned that, okay, well, God has said that it's going to come through, uh, my, my descendants are going to come through Isaac. So if I kill him, God's going to have to raise him up again. Do you see how he reasoned? But I'm going to obey God. But faith guided his reason. His reason did not guide his faith. If his reason had guided his faith, he would have done what I would have done, which is named a sheep, Isaac, and took the sheep up there. Okay? That's why he's the uh, epitome of faith. Do you see? But he cannot be the epitome of faith if he doesn't take God at his word. And that's why he gets a blessing. That's why God, you know, heaps all that stuff on him. Because Abraham was a great guy? Not necessarily, no. I hope none of us would, you know, if we're in a, in a tight spot, tell our wives to uh, say, you're my sister. Tell them you're my sister. No, you see, he wasn't fantastic all the time, was he? But he was a man of faith. And God here, when he calls something good, he calls it good because it reflects what he wants, what he says. If we're going to please God, we please him by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And the only way we can please him is to do what he tells us to do. Do you see that? Believe what he tells us we're to believe, even when it looks tough, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it hurts. Did it make sense to Abraham? You bet it didn't. But he, he still allowed his faith to guide the way that he was going to think. And that's what we need to do. When we're in that desperate situation, our faith should kick in and tell us 
that's dumb, that's of the devil, because that's questioning God. That's the flesh, because that's me getting angry. This is me getting peace, because I believe against uh, the confusion and the perplexity that I'm feeling, I still believe that despite my lack of understanding, God knows what's going on, and I trust God. Do you see? So this passage in Genesis 1 has important ramifications for the way that we're going to interact with God when we finally appear on day 6. All right, let's move on. Now, by the way, uh, just on this, uh, verses 6 through 8... Uh, after the creation of, of uh, matter at the beginning of the chapter, verses 6 through 8 show a kind of a molding or a fashioning process. Do you see that? God is fashioning in his division of the waters and so on and his making of the firmament. He's fashioning what he's, he's made. So you have the creation of what he's made and the fashioning of what he's made. And then in verses 11 and 12... Uh, they show uh, an ordering of God's creatures producing after their kind. So now you have uh, God putting the, in, in the grasses and the herbs and so on, he puts within them the ability to reproduce after their kind. Do you see that? So that, that ability is built into them. God's still sustaining and upholding things, but, but he's, he's given them that, uh, that ability. So that's an extra part of what's going on in creation. And by the way, that ability is an extraordinary uh, ability. It's an extremely complex um, set of circumstances and combination of things in the cellular level. Any of you read any of that stuff? <clears throat> any of you read any of the ID stuff or any of the Answers in Genesis stuff? You should read, you should read uh, Signature in a Cell by uh, Stephen Mayer. It's a fantastic book, amazing book. Or Darwin's Doubt or you know, any number of other books like that. It's absolutely spectacular. Um, the the, the um, complexity in the cell. Uh, Darwin's Black Box is another one and there's quite a few others that I recommend to you. Anyway, moving on. Look at verse 14 because something interesting is going to happen here. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Now, uh, we put lights out at Christmas time. Why do we put lights out? Because they're pretty. And we like looking at them. And we want other people to look at them too. And our kids like them. But we, lights are pretty, and so we put them up. And that's it. That's the reason. That's not the reason God put these lights up. Okay? God put these lights up for what? Let them be for signs. Signs. For who? For him? What does he need signs for? He made them. 
He doesn't need to be reminded of anything because he knows everything. So, God has put signs up, okay, before he's got anyone to pay attention to the signs. That's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like he's anticipating something down the road. Someone who can see the signs. Now, by the way, he wouldn't be able to see the signs if the light did not reach earth in time. He created these on day four. He's got two days for the light to reach the earth so that the man, who's obviously the one who's, who the signs are for, can see the signs. Do you see? Otherwise, they're not signs, are they? They're useless. So, if this is millions of years, I hope that you can see between this, then... Um, I think we've got a few problems. So, it was so. Let them, uh, well, he says, let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens. So the firmament of the heavens, you see, it's not, it's not the sky, is it? Remember the firmament earlier on? It's not just the sky. I mean, it's the cosmos. <coughs> And what's above the heavens? I know, it's difficult. I know. And you might want to not want to believe that and you might want to reinterpret it and that's okay. You don't have to hold that as a, as a doctrine because it sounds really weird. <laughs> I'm just saying, where did the water go? But you have to hold what it actually says. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. That's, yeah. You don't have to believe what well, I, you know, my solution. My solution might be just a dumb solution. But. Maybe he used it when the flood. He let all the waters out and flood. We're going to get there. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so. Um, verse 16. Then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, that's the sun. And the lesser light to rule the night. That's the moon. And he made the stars also. Uh, so the stars, according to Genesis, were made after the, uh, the sun and the moon. That's not according to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, um, Stephen Weinberg and the know-it-alls at NASA. Um, now, you might say that, yeah, but this is just pictorial language and this is, you're not just supposed to take this literally, Hannibury. But I'm just stupid enough to do, to, to take it literally. I'm just dumb enough to believe that God's actually relating to me the way he did it. And that uh, the theories of man have not caught up with the actual facts yet. After all, the facts are coming in thick and fast and men are still distorting those facts, aren't they? About the amazing mechanisms of the cell, about the, uh, the uh, fine-tuning of, uh, of the cosmos. Do you know, for example, that um, you have to have a perfect um, 
lunar eclipse, is it, or is it solar eclipse? Which one, the moon blots out the sun, is that a solar eclipse or a moon, lunar? Whatever it is. Anyway, you've got to have a perfect one of those in order to see the corona around the sun. And, the, and it's by looking and studying the, the corona around the sun that we uh, scientists have made all of these uh, great scientific discoveries about the cosmos. But for that to happen, the, the moon can't be so big in the sky that it covers the whole of the sun and so you can't see that corona. Do you see? So it means that between the, the sun over here and here's the earth here, that the moon has got to be just the right distance from both the earth and the sun so that when the sun does whatever it does or the moon comes uh, in front of the sun, it, this little piece of, of uh, dirt here blots out everything from this apart from just a little corona here. Do you see? See uh, the video, The Privileged Planet, if you want more information on that. So, God has, has created things in the way that he has created them and he's put these signs up there so that we'll learn. This is one of them. And that's a completely to scale drawing as well. <laughs> so, uh, it says, God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. So, the main purpose, therefore, for the stars and the, and the sun and the moon are to give light on earth. That means we have a geocentric, an earth-centric perspective right from the get-go. It's not necessarily saying that the earth is at the center of the universe, okay? Like in the Aristotelian position. But it is saying that the perspective of the Bible and the perspective that God wants us to have is geocentric. Now that will not surprise you if you really take seriously what happens on day six. We're getting there. <clears throat> so, evening in the morning, the fourth day. There are those people uh, that say that the sun and the moon and the stars were made before um, you know, the, the herb and, and everything. Uh, but they just appeared on day four. You couldn't see them before that. Well, I've got two answers to that. First of all, um, if these, if you're trying to say, and this is what one of my professors tried to say, that we're dealing with millions of years between the days, then I hope you can see that whether the sun and the stars were behind some kind of shroud or not, if they were behind that shroud for more than about 24 or 48 hours, all of the plants that were made in the previous day would have died. Do you see? <laughs> Secondly, um, if they were behind um, a shroud, why would they be behind a shroud? What use would they be? I mean, they're given for lights, aren't they? They're given for signs. 
So what use is it until, you know, God making them and then shrouding them, not doing what they're supposed to do? This becomes even more interesting when you realise that in the ancient world, the function of something was the primary value of something. Okay? So, descriptions were very often, uh, very often dealt with the function of something. So, if the function, as it's given here, signs and giving light, is obscured by something else that God's created, I hope you can see that God is fighting against himself. And the function is being thwarted by the creator. Let them function this way, but don't let them function that way. So, it doesn't make sense. then God said let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures what's going on you see is that we get a sequential and gradual movement from baser if I can say that life forms or rocks baser life forms and now we're, we're moving on to kind of flying things and fish on day five Uh, let birds fly above the, uh, the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them. Ah, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Now we come to day six. Day six is split into two. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. Just repetition. Why have verse 25 when verse 24 would have done enough? Because God wants us to know that there's a correspondence between what he says and what he does. And God saw that it was good. So now the stage is set. And God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, so who's God talking to? Well, according to many Old Testament scholars, not all of them, God's not talking to himself in the uh, Trinitarian sense. God is talking to a bunch of angels. Does anyone see a problem with that? Some kind of divine council that's up there. Because all of the ancient uh, pantheons, they all had a divine council up there. I mean, you've seen the movies. You know, Zeus is up there and he's got Athena by his side and he's, you know, he's got Apollo and the rest of them. And uh, they're all debating about stuff. And then Zeus gets annoyed and bangs the table and says it's going to be this way. And all of the ancient... Uh, depictions of the gods, they're all polytheistic um, and they all have that kind of portrayal so what these scholars are trying to say is that well that's the world view of the ancient Israelites and so what we should expect 
is the same kind of thing. And so when it says, let us make, this is this, this uh, biblical take on this divine counsel. There's a problem with that. First of all, uh, God says, I know it's later on in the book, but uh, God says, let there be no other gods before me. So there isn't any other gods in front of him that he's talking to. We know that. Secondly, angels don't create things. And why would God get together with a bunch of angels who he's just created, saying, let us create? Well, he's the one who's created everything up till now. What does he need the angels for? He's done a pretty impressive job, hasn't he, so far? So, you see, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, the us, it is a, a plural, but the, the word for God here, Elohim, is a plural too. And um, it's best for us to understand this in one or two ways. Either it's what's called a, um, uh, uh, a kingly um, prerogative, where he's using the plural as a plural of majesty, like Queen Victoria. You know, Queen Victoria is famous for saying, um, uh, we are not amused. Are there other occurrences of that in the Old Testament? Uh, yeah, yeah. Tower of Babel, for example. Um, so, um, Queen Vic says, we are not amused, meaning I'm not amused. So you better change it. Um, but there's no, we don't see a plural of majesty in the ancient world. Or God is speaking within the plurality of the Godhead. Now we don't have a full doctrine of the Trinity here. We do have God and the Spirit in the first two verses. We do have John 1 verses 1 through 3 that tell us God is there and the Spirit is there and Christ is there is as the Word not as Christ but as the Word the Logos so you have a Trinitarian idea even though you are importing some extra information from the New Testament you're not distorting anything from the context though notice you're not morphing anything by doing that <clears throat> so that's how I take this it's uh, God speaking to himself. Let us make man in our image. Uh, of course, another reason would be the angels are not made in man's image. Well, man is not made in the angel's image. He's made in God's image. According to our likeness, and let them have dominion over, look at this, fish of the sea, birds of the air, cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the stuff that's been created in the previous two days... He has dominion over. So he's been created for dominion. Folks, you and I have been created by God to have dominion. Unfortunately, Genesis 3 gets in the way. So don't, you know, don't rejoice too much about that. Um, you know, I wouldn't recommend standing in front of a charging elephant and exercising a dominion over it. But at the same time, that's how God created us in the first place, which means that um, 
uh, we can expect that God's plans will not be thwarted. <clears throat> so, uh, we have here uh, God creating man, verse 27, in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So, man here is used as a, a collective noun for male and female, do you see? So straight away again what we see in the first chapter of the Bible is something that you don't see in the ancient world. And you don't see it much in any other world actually apart from in those places that have been affected positively by the Christian worldview. And that is the equality of male and female. Did you see it? I'm not saying that there isn't a hierarchy. Hierarchy comes in in chapter 2. But uh, there is equality between them, okay? A woman is not less than a man. In Islam, I don't understand these women that, that want to convert to Islam because, you know, I mean, f- first of all, they have to, you know, veil themselves and wear this clothing that must be hideously hot inside there, you know, to go in these hot temperatures, covered up like they are. But also, they... Um, they don't have any promise of heaven. Heaven for a Muslim is for a man who gets there and he has 70 or so on houries who are female virgins. Um, teenage ones. And so, what about the, all of the dutiful women Muslims? that submit to their, their husbands and uh, all of the other stuff, you know. That's many times have to walk ten paces behind their husbands. Have you seen that in an airport? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll see that. Uh, what about that? They don't even have any um, hope of heaven, really. That's the Islamic worldview. Christian worldview is that they're equal. They can walk together. There's a big difference in worldviews and which ones you allow into your country, by the way. Which ones you allow to predominate in your thought. Um, The biblical worldview has that ontological um, status given to the female. You're made in the image of God. Uh, What is the image of God? We're not going to get to Zephaniah 3 tonight. So, you have these two words, image and likeness. Um, The Hebrew terms, I'll just write them in English. They don't look very English, but Selem and Demut, they both have this idea of... um, something that's set up to represent, okay? Um, so, you will find this, this word sometimes used, kings in a kingdom would set up an image of themselves or an image of a god. So, you know, you've seen these movies where the intrepid explorer is going through, he cuts something down and there's this hideous face <laughs> looking at him and that's the face of a god. Do you see? marking out the territory that belongs to that God. Or maybe there's a big statue 
grinning statue of something or whatever, marking out the territory of the person and the statue. So you have Ramesses, for example, he set up these, these images of himself, do you see, in Egypt and these places that he conquered. Caesar did the same thing. Um, and so some people think that this is what God is doing here, so that we are physically images of God in, in that sense. Can anyone see a problem with that? <clears throat> That's good, yes. God is a spirit. That's good, Mark. We look different, don't we? <laughs> you know, so unless Adam and Eve looked the same, which would have been a bit disappointing for Adam, um, and for Eve too, um, that doesn't really work. And the more people you get, the more, you know, different they start to look. And that, unless we're just talking about a basic body type, uh, which I'll come back to. I don't think that that works. But yeah, you see, Mark is, is right. Uh, God is a spirit. He's not confined by That's right. He's not confined in that way. <clears throat> and uh, so I think it's, it's better to go with uh, the ancients and to go with the reformers and the Puritans and uh, everybody up until the last 50 years, basically, uh, and say that the, the image has got to do more with the, the difference uh, in the rational nature of a human being as opposed to those that he has dominion over. Um, we are quite extraordinary even in our fallen state. Uh, we can think about something and then we can think about what we're thinking about. You ever realise that? We can think about something and then we say, well, better not think about that. I should be thinking about this. And then we, we can think about something else, and then, but at the same time, we're, we're telling ourselves that we should be thinking about this that we're thinking about. We can also, in a sense, be pulled back to think about this that we shouldn't be thinking about. That's extraordinary. Do you think a cow can do that? Or a dog? When the... The sun comes up in the morning. There are the cows. They're munching their grass. Okay, it's incredible sunrise. Amazing thing. The cow couldn't care less. The cow just goes moo. The dog just does what dogs do, you know. And all of the animals, the birds or whatever, none of them are stopping what they're doing to say, "Wow, guys, look at this." How can we do that? And we do do that. We go visiting places. So we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, but then we go to other places to see those, don't we? Because we want to see stuff. We want, to, we want to, our eyes and, and our senses and our minds to be impacted by the beauty of uh, something in the world. And if we're Christians, then we want to see something that God has done in this place and in this place and so on, yes? So when we see a sunset and we give glory to God, that's what we should be doing. But how can we do that? We can do that because we've been given the image of God. 
And the image of God reflects God. It thinks about uh, the things of God. It, it verbalizes things back to God. It can even create things, and we'll see in chapter 2. It can, it can uh, think through things and add things to what God has, has built. Do you see? Beavers will always build beaver dams. Okay? They're not going to build a multi-story car park. It's not going to happen. Um, moles are always going to dig holes. But we do all kinds of cool stuff, don't we? And uncool stuff too. Um, because we have that ability. So I think this is really what, what uh, the image and the likeness is. Is that that really distinguishes us more than anything else? I know we've got opposable thumbs and things like that, but I mean, I don't think that's the thing that he's talking about when he's uh, referring to us as being the image. And once, he's, once he has said to himself, notice the, uh, again what's going on here, God speaks to himself, God let us make man according to our image and according to our likeness and then he does it. He does not only what he says, you know, when he says, um, let there be, here he's kind of musing, do you see? He's not commanding, he's just musing, let us do this and then he does it. So God's thoughts and God's words and God's actions correspond with each other. That's really important because when God says to you that he loves you, that's what he's thinking. Do you see? When he says that uh, if you trust in him or you trust in his son, that you have everlasting life and your sins are forgiven and you have a home in heaven, then that's what his intent is. When he says that there will be a time when there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more pain, then that's what he has in mind. That's what he's determined for you before he said it to you. And he wants you to trust it. He wants me to trust it. That pleases him. Um... So God here, verse 28, blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he continues, see I give, I have given you every herb, I refuse to say herb, that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. He's been given the whole shooting match to have dominion over. Also, every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. It was just the way he wanted it to be. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. 
Uh, in verses 28 through 30, note that God the Creator makes everything uh, and then man has a role to play and a response to give because dominion involves responsibility. What kind of response, though, should he give? Yeah, man. He's made in the image of God to reflect God. Um, so, what kind of response would he give? This is where um, we're not. What kind of response for the command that he was given? Yeah, to exercise dominion, he has a command to do something. He has a role to play, but he then needs to give a response to. See, so it comes out more in chapter two, but. Be a loving manager of it. Yeah. Obedient. Yes. Yes. Good. It's it's only an, an inference, but he's to worship God. He's to do it in a worshipful way, a way that pleases God. In other words, his his response to God is to be a wholehearted response to his Creator, as the uh, the vice regent of the earth. You two. Do I have to separate you, Les? <laughs> I know you're a troublemaker. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So, um, one more thing before we, we close here. And that is, uh, please notice God speaks to man. Now, God had spoken to the, the birds, but you don't expect the birds said, okay, God, I'll, you know, I'll fly in the air and perch on a tree. That was what he wanted. Same as let there be light and there was light. But when he's speaking to man, he is speaking to him in a different way. Uh, see, I have given you all of this stuff and you're to have dominion over it. So, God has made man so that he can communicate with him. So that he can speak to him and be heard and understood by him. Uh, So this means that man is not some knuckle-dragging baboon, you know, who can only hit his partner over the head with a big club. He is an intelligent human being who can hear the words of God and understand them. The ability to understand the words of God is given to man. And because God means what he says, the ability to know exactly what is what um, is given to man. So that God, when Adam finally messes it up, Adam cannot say to God, oh, that's what you meant. (laughs) He understood exactly what God meant. And it's the same with us as far as what God tells us to do. God is clear. There are things in the Bible that demand study and that's why teachers are called upon and that's why I need to learn from other people and I need to 
you know, be prepared to revise some of the things that I know. Yet, that's the way in a fallen world we, we still have to operate. But generally, it's all pretty plain and clear to us. Our problem is not really knowing what God says. It's actually, yeah, obeying it, you know. Um, all right. That's all I've got to do uh, this week. We, oh, no, I've got one more thing. Can I do it quickly? Can I do it quickly? All right. Really quick. We'll come back to this next week. But um, what we've seen here in this sequence from Genesis chapter 1 is we've seen a plan. So we've seen God start off with nothing and from nothing we've ascended so I should have drawn the line up there but never mind to a man who has dominion over what God has created over that this stuff okay and God speaks to him In this creation, it wouldn't have made any sense to put man before all the stuff that he'd been given dominion over, do you see? Man, therefore, is the, uh, um, can't think of the word, zenith. The what? Culmination. That will do. Culmination of, um, of God's creative week. So God has a sequential and purposeful plan. And he's moving, here's a big fancy word for you, teleologically. Now, you say, what on earth is that? Um, my ministry is called telos. <clears throat> telos is a Greek word for goal or purpose. Uh, end game, whatever, whatever plan. It has various meanings, but all around about that, that kind of uh, semantic range. Goal, purpose, okay? So here, I hope you can see there was a telos to which the creation completed itself, and that was in man and man's dominion over what he created. Now, we've got day seven, the rest too, but this is the telos, it's not the, the rest isn't the telos, folks. I'll get to that next week. The rest isn't the goal. Because God didn't need to do all this stuff anyway. He was at perfect rest. So it, it doesn't make sense to, to say the rest is the goal. The rest is the culmination of the work. Man, woman, that's the end. That's the telos. Now, this means that in telling man to do something, to have dominion over creation, what God has done is that he's given some of that purpose, that plan, into the hand of mankind. Do you see? So mankind now needs to take some of that and the, the earth's there for him and to make something of it to the glory of God. It's a creation mandate. 
And clearly that involves a place where he will have completed that work to God's glory. So, what we find at the beginning of the Bible is what's called a teleology or a purpose to which the earth is tending. And that thing to which it is tending is called another fancy word, the eschaton, the culmination, the last things. It's a Greek word for the last things. Uh, so, there is a teleology, a purpose for which creation was, was made, and there's an eschatology that it's on a journey towards, do you see? And both of those two things run together. Can you write that down and remind me next week that I said that? because um, that's what I want to pick up on next week. So the connection between teleology and eschatology is that they run together and it's what I call the creation project. The creation project. Once God decides to create, he commits himself to a project that has not yet been completed. All right. And it ends in his glorification, also ends in ours.